Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to another new episode of Undying Light. I am your host, Pastor Alex, and we're continuing on our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. This week, we're going to finish up chapter 23. We're going to finish the woes and then cover the lament over Jerusalem. And the next week, we will dig into chapter 24 and we'll spend probably a few weeks looking at 24 and 25 because now we're at the Olivet Discourse. And so there's a lot of material unpacked. It won't be as in-depth as we went into it um, the last time we went through all of that stuff on the Eschatology series, but I think this will be a nice refresh, and uh, we'll see a lot of connectivity uh, take place there. So uh, last week in 23, so without wasting any time, uh, the only thing I have is the, you know, just the only real commercial I have for you is the Logos. That's what I use for everything. Logos.com forward slash Undying Light. You can get yourself a copy. You can get it for free. You can buy a package. It doesn't matter. Just get yourself Logos. That way you have a good Bible study software on at your fingertips. So here we go. We're going to kick it off here with verse 23. I'm going to read through verse 36 and continue the woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumum, and you neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and hypocrites, or Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all the uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not been taken apart with them. 
and shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some of you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous, able to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakahah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all of these things will come upon this generation. I'm going to go ahead and read uh, the last part here of chapter 23, the lament over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All right. So we continue with these woes. We talked a little bit um, about it last week as kind of we've seen that set up and then we've seen the first couple of woes that Jesus gives. And then verse 23 just jumps right back into that text where you see him continuing to essentially break apart this uh, this thinking that the Pharisees and scribes had kind of bolstered themselves into uh, this position where they feel that they had that kind of we're holier than thou type process. And so they, uh, you know, have kind of built this lifestyle around the outward demonstration. And Jesus really picks apart that here uh, in these first pieces where he even makes that demonstration there in verse 27 that they are whitewashed tombs. Again, I think that's probably my favorite verse that Jesus uses in like all of scripture, just because it's so, it so perfectly demonstrates how sin is in the eye of us as people. And we, we see that, especially in those that carry this legalistic hammer in the church today and how they, you know, essentially will establish the fact that if you do not do these things, then you obviously aren't a Christian and they uh, go to the extent to say, oh, look at what I'm doing and look at how holy I am. And I, I commend people who are good um, stewards of scripture and good stewards of their life. And, you know, I don't find fault if you want to share how you've become that and demonstrate like how you study or how you read or you know, any of that kind of thing that I think that's fine. But when it becomes this context of look at how good I am and look at how discernful I am and look at all that, you know, it really becomes troubling. And again, I, you know, I don't want to beat this guy down, but and maybe I just won't even say names because I just don't want to um, cause a rift. But there's a, you know, there's obviously there's all these Instagram pages, but one in particular kind of stands out. And it you it kind of has that pretense of, you know, I, I'm going to point out bad teaching, but in the meanwhile, I'm going to show how discernful I am. And some of it's comical. And, you know, and I think some of it is fine. But oftentimes you're kind of left wondering, why is this bad or why is this, you know, harmful to the church? And, you know, in and, and this particular page, many others do it as well, where they just don't explain the things properly. And that one's not really that bad. You know, there are other pages that will just throw out slanderous content and 
expect you to know why this might be bad or good without actually explaining it. Or um, in particular, some pages that are so wishy-washy in their theology that they flop to every direction and then they turn around and are, uh, you know, trying to chastise those who don't believe what they believe or chastise those who disagree with them. And, you know, a lot of that stuff we'll talk about more on the social media episode, but it kind of draws the light uh, into this, you know, look at me. And social media is a great example of that. It's the look at me and look at how holy I am. But, you know, when the lights go off and there's nobody around, then what? You know, how holy are you? And I had the opportunity to preach yesterday in our um, uh, there it's a assisted living, if you would, apartments here in town. And so they have a little chapel in the place. And every month uh, we rotate, uh, the local pastors do. And so February is my month to come in and preach. And so I go in every Wednesday morning and, and deliver a message. And I'm preaching through Colossians. And there's a particular passage there in chapter 3 where Paul kind of makes this you know, the statement about all of these things that, you know, this is the Christian life and, you know, the, the newness of life in Christ. And so I made the general statement, like how many of you have failed at doing this? And I, you know, and obviously everybody has because nobody can live up to that standard. And I said, you know, it's good for us to do these things for people to demonstrate. I said, but try to do these things when nobody's around. That's the challenge. Try to be a genuinely humble and meek and caring and compassionate and loving person when nobody is there to see you. That, that is the, the pinnacle, if you would, of what the Christian life is all about. But the Pharisees and the scribes here, they're getting, almost you can call it chastised by Jesus, but they're being called out. They're, the, the light is being shown in their sinful beings and in their sinful ways. And Jesus is not going to allow this to fly. So he starts it out here talking about tithing with mint and dill and cumin. And he's saying, you've neglected the weightier matters of the wall. You've neglected the justice and mercy and faithfulness. These uh, you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So uh, the Pharisees were so scrupulous about tithing that they even gave 10% of their garden herbs. And so every single thing had to have been 10%. And so they go down to such a line that supersedes what Moses had originally intended when he started to address the constructs of tithing, you know, and it was supposed to be the 10% of your, you know, your first earnings, if you would, from grains and uh, other things. It was never really driven around money, but the Pharisees have taken it to such an extreme that they've moved on now to the garden herbs, just the very basic things. Uh, and then they, Jesus goes on that they've neglected these general facets of the life, the justice and mercy and faithfulness. So comparing to the Pharisees' failure to keep the weightier portions of the moral law, the commands to act justly and mercifully towards others, their painstakingly tithing of garden produce is absolutely, utterly absurd. So they, they would rather you know, crush you in the fact that you aren't giving 10% of garden herbs when they are neglecting justice and mercy to those who need it. Jesus does not contend, uh, condemn their scrupulous, uh, uh, scrupulousness in tithing, but rather their failure to act with love and compassion. And so it's not that this is uh, inherently a bad thing that they are so tedious at tithing that they give everything. And, and again, there are people who are very meticulous at 
off the top of everything is what they give to the church. And that's wonderful. You know, I don't preach a 10% tithe. I preach, you know, to give out of the goodness of your heart. And that's more a really big, you know, New Testament perspective is to give from the goodness of your heart. And if you're capable of doing 10%, if you're only capable of doing 5%, whatever it may be, I do believe that you should be a good steward of your time, your, your, your money. And therefore, if you have the opportunity, you know, to give 10%, but you'd rather spend it on yourself or other things, then obviously your stewardship is off, but that's a discussion for another day. Jesus isn't chastising them for their tithing. It's the fact that they've neglected the more weightier portions of the moral law, the justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And they are not acting with love and compassion towards others. That's which, where the law of God applies and is good. But God's people live under the full teaching of God's word, both law and gospel. And so you have to consider that this is the weightier thing in this concept. It's not the tithing that matters. It's the fact that they have neglected so much. So verse 24, they're observing the trivial things and they ignore the weightier matters as Jesus demonstrates with the straining of the gnats. It's the things that aren't necessarily important. That's what they're focusing so highly on. So moving on to verse 25. So 25 and 26 here, um, we get the cleaning the cup on the outside. So they'd rather make everything look polished on the outside. And then this kind of leads into verse 27. Um, but they fail to see the greed and indulgence. And it's to first be cleaning the inside of the cup and the plate. Uh, then, then you can clean the outside. So the Pharisees are more concerned with the outward religious Observ- observations rather than the heart in its unending battle with sin. Again, this goes right into what he will say here in 27, but this is where the Pharisees fall into this trap of sinful deceitfulness. They have deceived, they have been deceited into thinking that if they can demonstrate to people how righteous they are, then they themselves are thinking that they are righteous when they have essentially given up that you know, the, the matters of the heart, because it's all about the outward display. It's the elegant robes. It's the, you know, the posturing in public. It's the adorations that they seek. It's the, you know, just like the example that Luke gives where, uh, the Pharisees in the temple and then the tax collector comes in, you see the Pharisee, you know, look back and say, thank God I'm not like him. Whereas the tax collector beats his chest and he says, Lord have mercy on me for I am a sinner. So the Pharisee thinks that he's doing the right thing and offering penance and, and, a, and an offering to God and standing in the temple and praying, whereas he's doing the, the most uh, selfish thing by justifying his own nature of sin in light of what the tax collector has done. And the tax collector realizes his unrighteousness and begs God for mercy and begs him for compassion and forgiveness. And that's what we as Christians should be doing and not living this kind of pharmaceutical lifestyle where, you know, we have this persona that, oh, you know, that person is a sinner. Therefore, I know I'm better than them. That's obviously the thing that we need to be avoiding. So verses 27, 28, like I said, probably my most favorite insult that Jesus gives for you are like whitewashed tombs, which is outwardly beautiful, but inside you're full of dead people's bones and all uncleansiness. And you have also the outright outwardly appearance of righteousness to others, but you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And uh, I think if I'm not mistaken, another verse uses instead of the dead people's bones, it's a, it's a rotting and decaying on the inside. I'd have to look. 
I, I think there's another gospel account of that. And I'm actually going to, you know, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to take a second and I'm going to look because I, I'm, I'm driven myself nuts now by knowing that because I've always, I, I know this verse, but I, I want to say that there's another verse out there. So I'm going to double check that and make sure I have my brain all in order here for you. Well, for your information, I will admit to standing correct, being corrected, I should say, in the thought that I could have swore I read it somewhere in the gospel accounts when Jesus says that, you know, calls them the whitewashed tombs and then uses the analogy of everything's rotting and decaying. And it's not, to my knowledge, a verse out there. And just by pausing my recording and going on my little escapade of looking, I, you know, I came across all the different translations of Matthew 23, 27. And a lot of it just is either a variation of dead people's or dead man's or bones of sorts. And so I think just over the time of using this and teaching this, I have kind of incorporated the rotting and decaying aspect into my mind. And so I do have to say, I, you know, this is the only time Jesus gives this particular uh, insult. And I think I've just have seen it so much that I've incorporated that into my mind, thinking that this is what it is. And really, it's not far from it because, right, you know, they're full of dead people's bones. And what happens? How do you get to bones? Everything has to rot and decay away. The flesh is gone. It's been eaten and dissolved. And so... I just, you know, it's one of those things. It's just, I, I had to go out and make sure that I was either right or wrong. And, you know, that's just indifferent on the subject. In fact, you know, that this is the only verse out there that says that. So um, interesting little tidbit for you there as I ventured down my tiny rabbit hole. But it's one of those that really demonstrates that the fact that they are so outwardly concerned with their appearance. You know, these whitewashed tombs are clean, whitewashed limestone facades. Uh, uh, and they are elegant, they're beautiful, and yet Jesus goes on to say that, in fact, that they're just unclean. The, Jew, the Jewish purity system held that contact with human remains renders one ceremonially unclean, as Moses writes in Numbers 19, verse 11. So moving on to verse 28, he makes that statement that they appear outwardly righteous to others, but are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus repeated his charge to his opponent's hypocrisy. This charge of lawlessness now is even more serious. And so now they're kind of being charged for violating the law. So moving on to verse 29, Jesus pronounces the, this seventh and climactic woe. He completes his denunciation and it shifts from the hypocrisy and defective observation to the rejection of the prophets and the violence against them. So he says that, uh, you know, you've built the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of prophets. And so Jesus says, you, by your statement, are accusing yourself. You have admitted that you have committed these heinous crimes in violation of the law by killing these prophets. And they, you know, go on to say that they are building and adoring the tombs of the great people can be a positive thing if it reinforces the good values embedded with those resting within. And the Pharisees were not following the prophets' teachings, even though they claimed to honor them. And that's a pretty big accusation there. Jesus accuses his opponents of being spiritual heirs of those who rejected and killed the prophets as his opponents' words and actions reveal. The people of Israel have a long history 
of rejecting and opposing God's messengers. So that's, you know, kind of the blatant statement right there. And we know that by just reading through the Old Testament and all the accounts of the historical nature of Israel, the prophets have been often uh, accused of um, killing and driving out and driving away the prophets. And in fact, Jesus even is asserting here that this will be exactly his fate where the Pharisees will charge Christ with the um, violation of claiming he's God and accuse him of blasphemy and have him crucified. And so these Pharisees partake in the same crime as their fathers do. So he says here in verse 31 that they've had this long history. He moves on to verse 32. Fill up then the measures of your fathers. More of a sarcastic statement that Jesus makes. He's mocking uh, the commands that his opponents to do exactly what they ought to do. This is a tragic recognition of some of Jesus' adversaries are beyond uh, correction. That they have already you know, asserted themselves to be the ones that will uh, target Jesus and kill him. And so Jesus is basically telling him, bring it on. I'm right here. Let's get it done. You want to do this? This is what you've done in the past. You are just like your fathers. Well, I'm right here. Go ahead and kill me. So verse 33 calls them, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? It's a pretty, pretty blunt statement that Jesus gives. Uh, the repetition highlights the hard heartedness of those denounced. Only repentance and faith can save such people from eternal condemnation. However, the Pharisees don't seem to be in engaging in wanting to repent. They want to continue in their lifestyle because it's comfortable and they get so many wonderful perks by doing so. And so we see here now moving on to verse 34. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men. So I had this statement with uh, kind of an argument, if you would, with the uh, a couple people. And they tried to use this verse as saying that prophets are still coming. Jesus is sending prophets. Well, it's not entirely what this passage is meaning. Jesus is saying, yes, therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of you will kill, uh, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. So remarkably, God's gracious revelation was to send to those who rejected and crucified Jesus, these prophets and these, and Jesus himself is included in this company along with the apostles that he is sending. Going all the way back to chapter 10, Peter, John, and Paul were flogged by the Jewish religious leaders as well as other Christian preachers were in Acts chapter 5 and in 2 Corinthians. So the apostles were those that were sent after Jesus. The office of prophet is closed. This is not Jesus saying that new prophets are going to come and provide new revelation, that these prophets are simply the proclaimers of the gospel. That is the apostles coming after Christ. Christ is going to send them into this world and the Jewish leadership are going to be the ones that hold them accountable for, in their eyes, violating the Old Testament, when in fact they are the ones that are supporting the Old Testament, and they are the ones preaching the good news that is foreseen in the Old Testament. So 
this is an you know an interesting verse and i was so shocked when this when people try to use this to demonstrate to me that the um that the prophets were still coming into the world because i'm like you have no idea the greater context of what's going on here do you jesus is literally laying the pharisees and scribes out to dry with all of these woes and and insults and demonstrations of how they violated god's perfect word and then you have the audacity to squeeze this verse out of context and assert that prophets are still present in the world, that the office isn't closed. There is no need for prophets. We have the complete revelation of Jesus Christ. Why do we need more revelation? You know, in the Old Testament, the prophets would often write and proclaim God's judgment in the immediate future against Israel. Prophets today want to talk about how God is going to make you wealthy and and, and happy and heal you of all these uh, uh, issues that you will face in life. And that's just completely and utterly, you know, a load of garbage. So verse 35, the righteous brood, uh, many prophets were innocently killed. The blood of the innocent, uh, all of the prophets from first to last. So he concludes it. Truly. I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. You know, in 8070, the Romans leveled Jerusalem and its magnificent temple, this destruction is partially fulfilled within Jesus's woes. And we'll also see how some of that takes place in the next chapter as being part of the uh, end of times that Jesus is foretelling. It's not that we should subscribe that all of the Olivet Discourse would be completed because that would be full preterism and we know that to be heresy. And the fact that there's people out there on the internet that hold to those positions absolutely just baffles me. Again, they cherry pick text and they'll have these blocks of text that you, you know, they'll send you a hundred verses showing the support that all of these things have been concluded. And you're like, okay, well, you've cherry picked everything be just and, and made it appear that this verse and these verses apply to 8070. And it, it's to me, when I, when I see these types of people, I just, I simply ignore them. I'm like, look, dude. Obviously, I don't believe what you believe. I believe what you have, or, you know, what you hold to is heresy. I'm not going to sit here and debate you. I don't, I don't have the energy nor the time, nor do I really care. If you want to believe all that, that we're living in the new heavens and the new earth, by all means, that's how you, that's what you do. You do you, boo. I'm not going to deal with it. I, I've studied scripture for far too long to realize um, that that is a true position. And I look and examine the world around me to know that that's not the case. And I've come to, you know, a level of acceptance that within partial preterism that some of these events were directed. We know that. We know that some of the stuff that Jesus foretells is coming shortly after his death, but that they're not going to be all completed in 70 AD. So um, Jesus is criticizing the Pharisees and the hypocrisy and obscenity of all their charges that will be laid against God's people on judgment day, none of them is more damning than the accusation that they despise God's word. Even Jesus's most acronious denunciations are motivated by his sincere desire that people turn from their sin and death and receive the gifts of eternal life. So Jesus chastises them, calls them out for it. And, you know, the prayer would be that, these individuals see the wickedness of their ways and turn to Christ. Moving on to the last couple of verses here, the lamenting over Jerusalem. Very short, very simple. 
Jesus begins to direct his words now towards the entire city. He's shifted his eyesight from the Pharisees now and uh, is back to speaking to the crowd. And this is where we see this double address. This is the same thing that takes place in Luke chapter 10. He says, how often this indicates that Jesus often visited Jerusalem and moving on to a hen that covers her brood. Uh, the human will rejects and perverts the means and the instruments of the Holy Spirit, which God offers it throughout the call. Now, this particular verse is often one that the progressives love to use to demonstrate that God or Jesus, for that matter, is uh, or has female tendencies. What Jesus is doing is he's demonstrating the the analogy, the comparison acts of how he a hen gathers her chicks together just as God is gathering his people together. They don't share in the acknowledgement of the genderism that they are both female and light, but it's that the hen gathers her chicks together to protect them under her wings. Whereas God is calling the Israelites back to him in order to protect them. And we see this take place throughout all uh, throughout the old Testament you know, judgment would befall upon Israel. Israel would go into exile. They'd be back out of exile and they would be protected by God for a period of time until they are, you know, to the, till they turn wicked again. And then the cycle repeats itself. And so God is always protecting his people. But here Jesus is making that comparison that he has sent these prophets and the Israelites, the Pharisees, more or less, have stoned and killed those prophets that he sent. And he goes, but I have continuously brought you under my protection. I have continuously done the things that you need to have been done. And you have continuously rejected that. This is not equating Jesus to having these feminine qualities or for him to be feminine in, at all. It is the comparing the like matter of the of the two things the hen and christ and his love and compassion here for people uh so 38 see that your house is left to you desolate this is another uh reference to the destruction of the temple in 70 a.d and verse 39 uh, different use of the psalm that is sung earlier in chapter 21 but i for i tell you you will not see him again and so you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord and those who rejected and killed Jesus did not see him after the resurrection. They will, however, see him when he returns in glory. Just days before his, his sacrificial death on the cross for all people, Jesus laments of the fact that so many of his people rejected him and the gift of eternal life. And in the end, those who reject Jesus and refuse his offer of eternal life will be judged even when hated and rejected by many jesus never stops loving and sincerely reaching out to them he does the same with us today continuously striving after us continuously pursuing us continuously desiring for us to repent and turn to him so that's going to conclude chapter 23 and next week we begin with the olivet discourse and we will spend time hacking through this um I don't want. I think I said that you know we'll, we'll spend a few weeks on it, but I don't want to spend a whole bunch of time because we're getting close to the end of Matthew, and uh, then we'll shift directions and move on to another text. Uh, but I want to ensure that we do the text its proper due diligence. So uh, that will start next week. We're going to look at uh, verses one through fourteen, and 
we will dig into some of that meaty material that everybody so loves to talk about the end of times and all the fear mongering and stuff that goes with it. Now, if you really want a good, good long explanation of the eschatology, go back to like early 2020 on this show and you'll see the uh, uh, time that I put into doing that whole series. And we started with heaven, hell, death, and we went into the four major views on eschatology. Then we looked at pagan and world religions. And then we looked at Genesis and started our journey from there and worked through a whole bunch of different texts leading up to the entirety of the book of Revelation. So uh, tune into that if you want more eschatology. But we'll uh, you know dig into the Olivet Discourse here uh, starting next week. So ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to check out tomorrow's show on the... Uh, reading your Bible in a year. It's a little bit shorter this week, but it's, uh, you know, quick punches and we're done. But uh, tune in on Wednesdays as well as we work through the material on social media and we're continuously unpacking that stuff. So uh, three shows for you every week. I don't know why I chose to bite off that big of a plate, but here we go and uh, we'll just make it happen. So till next week, guys, have a great week. God bless. We'll see you all later. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.